Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein for another conversation. Matthew Hennessy joins us today. He is the deputy editor of the op-ed page at the Wall Street Journal and the author of a new book, Visible Hand, A Wealth of Notions on the Miracle of the Market. Mr. Hennessy, thank you for joining us. No, thank you for having me. All right. So, you know, in, on, on the show, we jump right into the book. Now, as you say at the very beginning, you're not an economist. So uh, where where does your wisdom about the issues of, of the economy that you discuss in the book, where does your wisdom come from? What do you base that on? Well, uh, I guess I'm going to have to start right away um, and uh, dispute your premise uh, <laughs> that I have some wisdom. I mean, I guess it's a, it's a, it's an act of some hubris to write a book under any any conditions. But uh, uh, my wisdom, if I have any, um, comes from a very small amount of studying and a large amount of um, watching and listening. I thought that uh, there's a there's a kind of a donut hole in the world uh, that a lot of people fall into. You either know a lot about economics. Uh, on the one end, or you know almost nothing and are terrified it on, about it on the other end. And I thought that um, somebody ought to write a book for the people who are terrified of it, who, like I used to be, um, you know, sort of avoid it uh, at all costs, uh, if possible. I lived, you know, a a, a long, many decades uh, sort of closing my eyes or plugging up my ears anytime anybody started talking about anything having to do with uh, markets or capitalism or socialism or economics or macroeconomics or the Dow Jones industrial average. It was all just a snooze fest and I wanted no part of it. Um, uh, at a certain point in my life, uh, a few light bulbs went on and I, and I uh, found myself in a career as uh, working at a financial newspaper, financial and policy and politics and the arts and everything obviously all wrapped up in there as well. But economics is a big part of it. And I thought, uh, well, you know, there's more than a few people out there who were just like I was, and uh, they deserve to have a kind of a book. Now, it's not exactly economics for dummies. Uh, I don't uh, pretend to be teaching a class or uh, offering any kind of a textbook. It's just a sort of one guy's take on on the miracle of the market, as the subtitle says. Well, I, I saw a thread, I think an important critical thread in the book, which says that if we look at economics in mostly or primarily a numerical or statistical way, if we're heavily quantitative, we're missing something very important about the field of economics or the, or the, the reality of economics, correct? 
Yeah, I mean, it's a huge turnoff. I mean, numbers for a certain type of person are, are just a huge turnoff. I realize that the cutting edge of economics in the 21st century is um, heavily data-driven and heavily statistical and, um, you know, involves complicated models and, um, you know, inferences and uh, correlations that can be drawn. The, the root of it, though, is, is, is much simpler and much more intuitive. Um, and my, my essential premise, the thing that sort of underlies the whole uh, the whole book is that it's not as complicated as as you may think, and you you probably know more about it than you realize. Um, I know that I, I know that I did uh, once I started to study it. I, I thought a lot of this stuff is really really um, um, not that hard to grasp. Economics. Uh, is not um, at heart about numbers. It's not about money. It's not about Bitcoin or uh, the producer price index. It's about choice and yeah. about how human beings uh, interact with each other and, and make choices, um, as economists like to say, in an environment of scarcity, which is um, unfortunately the world that we live in. So, uh, yeah. You know, the gist is sort of like the less numbers and the less jargon and certainly no graphs, although graphs can occasionally tell a better story than, than words can. Um, you know, I wanted to make it so that it didn't feel like, um, you know, something you need to be afraid of, yeah. something like a high school or, or a college class, just to, just a couple of people just talking. Well, actually, I do most of the talking, but, uh, you know, the kind of, at, at the kind of level that, that uh, anyone who, who avoids this stuff as a matter of uh, mental hygiene could, could, could easily digest. Well, I'll, I'll tell our listeners that it's, it's a great read. Uh, you, you, manage to, you manage to explain things uh, about choice in very clear and, and, and illuminating ways, but it never sounds like dumbing down. It never sounds like you're avoiding the the, the real complexities uh, of things. That actually you're you're getting rid of some of the false complexities uh, of things in, in economic thought. Now, one thing uh, that is very important is this visibility invisibility factor to things. You say that the economic circumstances of people's lives are often rather invisible, invisible to them. Well, what do, what do you mean by that? And maybe I should say why. Is that the case as well? Um, well, the most famous metaphor in all of, of economics, of course, is the invisible hand. Adam Smith's um, idea that uh, there are sort of uh, there's a uh, there's a, there are forces at work that uh, we can't see that uh, you know push us in all sorts of directions and lead us to uh, certain choices that have certain outcomes and uh, while everyone know everyone is familiar with this idea of, of the invisible hand uh, my contention is that the the forces which are indeed invisible and are sort of magical uh, but no less magical than than gravity or some of the other invisible forces that are on work that work on us all day long the effects of these forces are are very um very visible. You can see them all around you. The the um, you know something as simple as um, you know deciding uh, uh, where to go to college or uh, which car to buy or uh, you know what how to spend your Saturday night. Uh, these are um, decisions, choices that you make that are informed by 
these kind of invisible forces, you know, economists call them supply and demand, and there are other ones as well, um, that are sort of, um, that are there and they're operating on you and you are using them uh, as they are using you. Uh, you, may, you can't see them, obviously. They're not protons and neutrons and things like that. Um, but the forces are very powerful and uh, you can see their effects all around you. And if you, if you sort of, you know, it's just like uh, there are a lot of things, as I say in the book, that we miss most of our lives. And then suddenly we sort of, the light bulb goes on and you start seeing it. And, um, you know, w- once you start um, thinking like an economist, you start seeing these kinds of uh, invisible forces, the old invisible hand at work uh, in all, all sorts of parts of your life. You, you note that uh, it was really just a little aside, right, in, Mar- in, in Adam Smith's Wealth of the Nations where he, uh, where he mentions the invisible hand. And you call that famous book more a, quote, revelation than a, quote, invention. What do you mean by that? Well, I've always been struck by the fact that it was um, published the same year as the um, Declaration of Independence. And this is hardly the first person to notice this. But 1776 was was a big year uh, for uh, on both sides of the Atlantic. So Thomas Jefferson writes the Declaration of Independence, as complicated as that that whole subject is uh we'll try to keep it simple for our purposes uh it's a kind of um it's a kind of new way of looking at political organization and the way people organize societies politically and at the same time smith is publishing the wealth of nations it's a new way of looking at economic organization and the way we we uh the way we organize our lives economically now it's a very intimidating book in the, in, in the way that the Declaration of Independence really isn't intimidating, even at this long remove, you can still sort of wrap your your, your head around the Declaration of Independence, even though it uses antiquated language and stuff. But the, the, the wealth of nations is a big, um, do, they might as well just put it like a, you know, a, a cover on it that says, do not read. It's really intimidating. And the um, the language is archaic and it's really hard to sort of uh, read. Um, for, for, for a modern person to read and enjoy. Mm-hmm. And so buried very, very deeply within it is this notion of the invisible hand. But there's a lot of other stuff in it, too. And I don't want to pretend like I'm some kind of a Adam Smith scholar because I'm really not. Um, but it, struck, it strikes me when I read it that there's a lot in here that's really more journalistic, re- reportorial, uh, you know, m- more so in that vein than sort of like philosophical musing. In the same way that the, you know, the Declaration of Independence is a kind of like a, a, a flag in the sand, planted in the sand that says, you know, you know, these things are true. We hold these things to be self-evident. They're so true that we need to act on them. And so Smith is sort of writing down for the first time in a way that people, uh, you know, paid attention to, uh, you know, the way things are the way things really are, the, mm-hmm. the way we do business, the way we make choices, the way we provide for our families, um, not some idea about how they should be or um, how different they could be, but how, how people really um, interact with each other commercially and, you know, to a large degree personally. And it's, um, you know, there's a lot of collected wisdom in there. Uh, so there's a sort of, you know, you'll frequently hear uh, this uh, critique of capitalism that it's a sort of a modern invention, uh, or, you know, uh, 
uh, it's not that old and it's a kind of an overlay over traditional society that, that, that fits poorly and, and, uh, you know, erodes a lot of traditional ways of life. But I think, I don't think that's right. I think that, uh, Adam Smith's wealth of nations is, is a kind of, a, a book of wisdom, um, telling readers, telling the world how people organize themselves um, uh, commercially and uh, in other ways that is not some kind of, um, it's not a veneer. It's not some sort of like uh, new invention. It's the truth about, about some, it's a fundamental truth about how humans behave. And so that's, that's sort of, um, that's sort of my view of uh, Smith uh, and, uh, you know, I recommend people give it a shot if they haven't read the wealth of nations, but it sure is, it sure yeah. is tough going. Well, w one thing that you know about the invisibility is that we just don't really teach economics very well at the high school or even the college level. You actually refer to your schooling, uh, relative to, to these issues as miseducation. What, what happened there? Well, um, yeah, th there wasn't much, um, you know, I went to high school in the 1980s and I think that my high school offered a, a, a course in economics. I can't remember terribly well, but my impression of it, and I think the impression of most people that I went to school with then that it was essentially like, you know, um, you know, uh, prep for kids who, who, who might want to study accounting in, in, in college or something like that. It, uh, you know, I was raised in a particular environment where the, um, a lot of these things weren't really discussed openly. Um, you know, my parents were uh, teachers and social workers um, and from a long line of police, nurses and, and teachers, you know, the, the so-called helping professions. There was, you know, I don't want to call it economic uh, ignorance, but there wasn't a whole lot of focus on uh, you know, um, careerism or uh, making money. I, you know, in the book, I say that there was a sort of a line drawn in my mind between good jobs and bad jobs, jobs that are about helping people and jobs that are about helping yourself. Um, that was the sort of the, the, the milieu that I, that, I, that I came up in. And I don't really recall too much in the way of anyone um, uh, painting a different picture. Now, I've lost my train of thought here for a second. Um, well, well you, you go into the social studies teachers a little bit, and just the, the whole orientation uh, is really yeah. toward the left and yeah. really anti-economic. Yeah, that was for sure. All of my American history classes were sort of the history of the labor movement, and um, you know, some of that curriculum uh, was tied uh, – very directly to the books we were reading in English class, which were all about sort of, um, you know, muckraking journalism and, uh, you know, fighting the man and, and getting the, you know, uh, oh, yeah. sort of the socialist politics of the, er, you know, the, the, the muckrakers of the early 20th century, um, which slid very, very naturally into the civil rights movement of the mid-century. And, you know, that was kind of the diet that we were fed. I wasn't exactly, you know, looking for anything, you know, uh, I, I didn't, I didn't, you know, I'm not sure that, you know, uh, reading national review out loud in class would have been uh, a better education or anything like that. But um, there was certainly no focus on economics, no explicit focus on economics. Now, I will say I had a wonderful experience in junior high school with a guy who 
inadvertently um, had a big effect on me. And I tell the story in the book, the guy was a science teacher and a, and a, and a soccer coach in our school, who's kind of a tough character. Uh, one of the, one of the teachers that you kind of try to avoid because, you know, he would make you take your hat off and, you know, just hmm. tough guy in, in the eighties, there were still a lot of guys who had been in Korea and in, in, in the second world war, uh, you know, who went into teaching and stuff. I don't know that that happens much anymore, but, um, this guy one day, for no reason that I could tell, uh, painted a slogan in, in, the, in the hallway and, uh, with a stencil and some paints. And uh, what he wrote on the wall said, life is not determined by what you want. Life is determined by the choices you make. And it just sort of sailed over my head at the time. I remembered it. I sort of mentally uh, filed it away. And, and as I was thinking about writing this book, I, I thought to myself, well, that, that's in some key way was like the, the seed for me, that, that life is not determined by the things that ought to be, uh, you know, not that we shouldn't try to change the world or, or, or do big things or attempt to make it a better place, but the choices that you make are, are, are likelier to, 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 uh, to, uh, dictate the direction of your life. And so we should think about how we make choices and why we choose the things that we, that we do and, well, you know, what, what, what goes into it and, and, and how, how the outcomes can be traced to the choices. So that was, that's for me, the way into economics, not, yeah. uh, you know, the, the, the stock market or, um, huh. you know, anything, anything that, that, that someone, might um, justifiably say uh, uh, is, uh, is sort of a more direct line into the into the world of of uh, you know the Wall Street Journal or the Financial Times or something like that. Um, it, it's really for me about choices, and um, when you're talking about choices, you're inevitably going to come to the most important part of my book and of this whole this whole way of thinking, which is that uh, you know th there are no there are no perfect solutions. There are no perfect choices there's only ever trade-offs yeah. and that's essentially the root of, of of what i'm trying to carry across here is that at the heart of economics is is um this notion of trade-offs and if you don't reckon with that and if you don't wrestle with that you're probably going to be a very unhappy person for a long time and you're going to be very dissatisfied with um almost everything that you see in the world whether it's the newspaper or or you know what you see in the news and coming out of politics to what you see in your own life in terms of your professional success and, you know, um, how you're able to sort of raise your family and launch your children into the world. If you, if you don't have a fundamental understanding that life is about trade-offs, um, it's going to be a grim story for you. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. You, you actually want to come to look at markets really in, in very fundamental ways as, as forms of voluntary exchange. And that's where choices come in. You, you make choices in the market. And 
it seems like you, well, you draw this out a, a bit, but uh, progressives, you know, some of your teachers, they, they feel that that gives them discomfort, right? Then we've got, we've got trading partners making choices uh, voluntarily. There's something about that process that, that they, they dislike. Um, is, is it that, well, someone may lose, someone may make a bad choice and pay for it. And that's wrong. Is, is, is that the outlook that, that troubles them? I mean, I'm Could not be. sure. I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, you know, that is the kind of, um, that's the danger. Uh, you know, we, people make bad choices all the time based on, you know, um, um, distorted or uh, even perverted ideas of, of uh, what, what will be good for them. Um, the, the important thing to remember is that if it's not voluntary, it's not really a market, you know, yeah, the, in, right. in, in, the, in the kind of uh, world that I'm sketching out here, um, any form of voluntary exchange, speaking very broadly here, uh, is necessarily a win-win or else you know, uh, people wouldn't enter into it. Uh, it, anywhere there's coercion going on uh, explicitly or implicitly, you cannot, you know, you cannot fairly call that a voluntary exchange. And so, you know, that has repercussions in, uh, in terms of policy, uh, and in terms of morality and all this kind of stuff, but I'm trying to keep things very basic. Yeah. Uh, so, such that, you know, someone like my teenage son might actually be able to understand this. But if someone is entering into a, uh, a voluntary exchange, there's no such thing as fair or unfair. It, it's by it's by its very uh, definition. It's a fair it's a fair exchange or else uh, people wouldn't enter into it. And I in order to keep it as simple as possible, <laughs> I use the example of cavemen trading you know, furs for berries and things like that. I mean, things can yeah. get complicated. You can get bonked over the head by a guy with a big club and he can take all your furs and berries, but nobody would call that a free market. That's something else. So to, to, to um, you know, criticize the market or to say that it's always unfair or that the game is always rigged is, um, is uh, I don't think, yeah. I don't think, you know, as far as what, what, what motivates, uh, teachers. I mean, I think on, on some level, everybody wants to remake the world in their own image and everybody is motivated by the, a desire to do good and find yourself in a position of power over young people. Um, those things can make it kind of a toxic brew. I don't think anybody ever tried to um, steer me away from, you know, explicitly steer me away from understanding, you know, some, some, some basic things about economics, but the, the cumulative effect of the, the curricular choices that went on in my high school, and I'm sure in uh, loads of times, can only be a hundred times worse uh, now than it was then. Um, <laughs> at least then we had this sort of like specter of communism hanging over the country. So there was at least a kind of, uh, at least a nominal uh, acknowledgement that, uh, you know, the capitalists were, you know, if not perfect, probably the good guys, but even that's gone now. So there's, it's kind of, a, kind of open season on, on the free market. And you had you had guys like Mr. Seaver, uh, your your teacher, who put up the banner, and yeah. Yeah, you don't you don't see the, those those people are pretty hard hard to find uh, outside the PE office, I think, uh, at, at this point. But 
Um, your, your examples. Yeah, you, you take very homespun examples to demonstrate some of these more complex sounding phenomena like diminishing marginal utility and opportunity preference costs. What does your example of the chocolate and strawberry ice cream show? The chocolate and strawberry ice cream. Well, this is an example that is designed to uh, illustrate a couple things, which is that um, everybody, uh, you know, kind of has has a price. <laughs> uh, no free you know, college. I, I, no. Yeah, there's going to be a trade off there is the bad news. Um, you know, Pablo Escobar, the great, uh, you know, the great, uh, that was the wrong choice of words. Just not, but the famous <laughs> Colombian drug dealer um, is, uh, said, everyone has a price. You just have to find out what it is. So I use the example of uh, chocolate and, and strawberry ice cream to say that in, in, a, in a world where everything is equal, you may have a preference over one of the, one or the other, and you may not be able to explain it rationally. Um, you just like, I, I, for instance, I happen to like strawberry ice cream. Uh, if you give me a choice between chocolate and strawberry, I will choose strawberry. Now, can I, can I give you a reason why? Can I quantify it? Can I put it into a spreadsheet and sort of crunch the numbers? No, I can't, but I have a preference. It's, uh, identifiable and I'm going to act on it. Um, so I, uh, set up a little hypothetical where I start upping the upping the ante. Actually, I'm sorry, I've, I've reversed it. I do like strawberry ice cream, but in my little example, the person prefers chocolate. Okay, so then I start upping the ante. Well, if if you like chocolate so much and you'll always pick chocolate over strawberry, what if I tell you something extraordinary about the strawberries that are used to make this particular strawberry ice cream? You know, would that change your mind? Would that be enough to um, alter your preference so that you would say, you know, I'm not going to have the chocolate. I'm going to have the strawberry. And if you say, no, 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 I don't care about all that. Uh, I start, I keep upping the ante, upping the ante uh, and saying that, well, eventually this really fancy strawberry ice cream is going to, you know, it's going to cost a hundred dollars. The chocolate only costs $5. But if I then start discounting the price at a certain point, you're going to say, I might give that, that really fancy ice cream a try. Um, and so this is just a sort of a delicious way of tricking you into recognizing that we all have preferences and that we all have a price, that there's a point and it's invisible uh, most of the time uh, until that moment when, the, you know, the smile comes on your face after you taste this delicious strawberry ice cream, which is entirely visible, uh, where your sort of preference switches and you've made a, a very economic choice in that moment where you've said, you know, I prefer chocolate, all things being equal, I would have it. All things are not equal anymore. And it's moved my preference calculus a little bit. Yeah. Um, uh, and and I the, love that story, if only because it, it, it allows me to fantasize about having some really fancy <laughs> strawberry ice cream. And, and one of the implications there is that choice is not a fixed thing. Choices change. Uh, well, the, the intensity change. of you're, choices you're, if or preferences change if uh, if conditions change. People are people. Sure. People are dynamic. Uh, that's what the that's what the cotton candy example uh, that you that you yeah. bring up shows very well. Those first few bites, hey, great! By ten bites, uh, uh, you don't want to choose Three cotton candy. Anymore. <laughs> yeah. So the, one of the one of the stronger criticisms of you know what you might call classical economics is that it, the assumption that 
all people are are 100% fully rational and and all of their decisions are yeah. um, ordered in this way to maximize their utility. Now, uh, that's bordering on jargon, the kind of jargon I, I, I tried to steer away from. But all it really means is that, you know, you, you approach every situation almost like a robot and you say, well, clearly um, choosing this uh, option A would be 51% and choosing option B would be 49%. So I'm going to choose option A. Uh, so I'm sensitive to this, this failure of classical economics to you know, predict the way people are going to behave because we know from our human experience, and there's literature about this. I, I don't mean to, uh, certainly some people will listen to this and say, well, he hasn't done the reading of such and such and whatever, but I'm, I'm trying to keep things super simple. And I, in fact, I may not have done the reading. I don't know. Um, that kind of economics of pure rationality often you know, breaks down when there's a delicious plate of strawberry ice cream in front of you, right? So that you don't have this, uh, we don't perform these kind of calculations explicitly most of the time. And we are free people, so we're at liberty to change our minds. And, you know, you can't, you know, because you like strawberry ice cream yesterday doesn't mean you'll necessarily like it tomorrow. I recognize all that. But, you know, we're talking about, you know, most of the time, a choice is a choice is a choice. Now, there are some situations where you have iterations of choice and you're going to be coming back to it again and again. And again, there's a whole literature on that. But the easiest way to understand some of these basic economic concepts is to look at an individual choice and to sort of break down the, the, uh, the impulses and the forces at work in, in, in each case. You know, come back right. to the, the idea of free uh, a moment ago. Why do so many people insist on giving free that, that meaning? As if, as if free means it's, it's just free. It's just there. There for the taking. Um, you're talking about, uh, you know, political opportunists offering free, free peace all the time. Is that what you're talking about? Maybe, maybe that's what it, that's what it is. Well, you promise I mean, people you know, free peace. It's a, what, a bribe or, or yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, if the visible hand is the most famous, is the classical liberal economics most famous uh, sort of uh, catchphrase, then there's no such thing as a free lunch is probably its second most uh, famous one. Um, you know, the the as mentioned earlier, as mentioned often, um, you know, the whole the whole game is trade offs. So you can't get something for nothing. There's not going to be a situation where you walk away 100% satisfied from every sort of interaction or transaction that you have. You're always going to have to give something up, even if that something is, uh, you know, um, invisible to you uh, or really hard to quantify. Uh, you know, I, 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 a little example from the book is that when I was a kid in school, I was pretty good at sports and I like to play baseball, um, but I also wanted to be in the school play. And uh, I had to choose. There was a, they couldn't both be done at the same time because of the the way the scheduling worked. Yeah. Um, now, did I did I lose? Yeah, I lost something, but you know, I got what I wanted. But I also lost the opportunity to do the thing that I couldn't do because you know I couldn't be in two places at one time. So, you know, in terms of you know, if you were going to sit down and try to sketch out, you know. How did I how did I come out in that transaction? Did I come out ahead or behind? You have to sort of include an assessment of the things that you didn't get to do, which is uh, 
which is a wonderful elemental component of economics that we call opportunity cost, which is sort of, uh, you know, often implicit um, um, reckoning for the things that you can't do when you make a choice or the things that get ruled out um, necessarily by one making one choice over another. Uh, just last remark, uh, you mentioned you have five kids and so my respect for you has, has soared. Uh, just, just the, the, one, one must certainly, uh, become a master of choice when, when, when one has the five, five kids. So, uh, the book is Visible Hand, A Wealth of Notions on the Miracle of the Market. Matthew Hennessy, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Mark. I enjoyed it. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.